0: This is Aton Weinstein, and I'm Naor Menninger, and you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Imagine this. It's 2011 and you're managing a hospital in Aleppo, Syria. Life is ordinary until a thunderstorm of civil unrest erupts into the Syrian civil war. Chaos reigns as the conflict intensifies and the Assad regime's iron fist descends upon anyone suspected of opposition. Amid this turmoil, Shadi Maltini, the general manager of that very hospital, becomes a beacon of hope. He and his comrades work tirelessly, covertly providing aid to wounded and ill civilians as they navigate the treacherous landscape of a city under siege. In the heart of the Syrian war's darkest days, Shalimaltini's initiatives shine with unwavering resolve. His dedication to helping those in need knows no bounds. But as the conflict rages on, danger lurks even closer. In 2012, a deadly twist of fate shatters their cl- clandestine network. Discovery by the regime forces Shadi into an impossible decision stay and risk certain death or flee the war torn country that was once his home. Today, Shadi Maltini is not just a survivor, he's a symbol of resilience and compassion. As the chief executive officer of Multi Faith Alliance, He tirelessly advocates for humanitarian aid and bridges cultural divides. His mission transcends borders, encompasses Syria, humanitarian aid, and Israel, topics deeply intertwined with his extraordinary journey. We're thrilled and honored to have Shadi Maltini on the show with us today to discuss his life, Syria, humanitarian aid, Israel, and much, much more. Thank you so much for joining us, Shadi.
1: Thank you, Naur, for the lovely introduction and happy to be with you on your broadcast.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry guys that Aitan is not here. He's sick and uh, he couldn't join us. Um Wow well, Shadi, where where do we start from? It's it's like what what is your what what is like I wanna jump really back, okay? Like yeah. how was your childhood in Syria?
1: Uh very uh Probably normal childhood, I don't know, but Middle Eastern standard, let's say, normal childhood. Sometimes Middle Eastern standards are very weird for people in uh, other countries like the U.S. right now. But I was brought up in um, like an upper middle class uh, society. My, both my parents were uh, physicians. My mother was a oral surgeon and a dentist. My father was an ophthalmologist. And uh, they, you know, my mom was like probably the first woman doctor in, you know, like, uh, oral surgeon in northern Syria, so she was a type of pioneer. And we, we lived in Syria. My, uh, my upbringing was totally under the Assad regime, so I never knew anyone but the Assad government, like a president. But the last the name, yeah, brought up under the father and then under the son. Uh, We were never a political family, we were, um, you know, moderate Muslims, we were never very religious or uh, very secular like uh, a lot of the population of of Syria, middle of the road, moderate uh, religious people. Uh, You, You
0: grew up in Aleppo?
1: Yes, I grew up in Aleppo, I finished high school in Aleppo. So, I lived uh, all this uh, period during, also witnessed the 80s when there was a, a revolt by the Muslim Brotherhood against the uh, Father Assad and what happened in the city of Hama that was besieged. You know, I, I witnessed the army coming into our house in Aleppo to search it, search it for books, specific books that they think that spreads uh, radical Islamic, uh, you know, Uh, Ideology Ideology. or stuff like, yeah, stuff like this. So I I lived through this, I lived through a demonstration, then everything came very calm, and nothing was happening. I went... Wait, I lost you for a second, Shadi. Can you hear me? No.
0: I I, I lost you for a second. Oh, oh, okay. can you get to the last sentence from from the beginning so
1: after finishing high school i went to study college in lebanon i was in beirut i lived in beirut uh, for 4 years and also there i was during the syrian occupation of lebanon so syria controlled everything and me being a syrian in the middle of that exposed me to a lot of things uh, mm-hmm. i was um, <laughs> i was sleeping when the uh, i lived close to the American University of Beirut. So I woke up one day, 4 a.m. My ears are buzzing and, and after that next day, we actually, we didn't know what happened, but I there was glass all over me and the admission building of the American University uh, got blown up and I was just right next to it. So I, I've witnessed some interesting uh, events. Then went uh, to establish a manufacturing business in Bulgaria uh, where I lived and then I went back to Syria in 2007 to um, run my family's business, which was growing. We we, we established a, a private hospital, built a private hospital in the early 80s, and we had a lot of other businesses. And I was the only child who went into business. So my siblings were either physicians or in uh, engineering. So my dad was requiring someone who has a savvy business background. And there, when I came back and run my family business, and 2011 happened, the Arab Spring in late 2010, and I was in the middle of it.
0: We'll get to it in in a few minutes. I I wonder, growing up there, um, becoming a young young adult in Syria, like, how do you perceive, many people I think don't know that Syria is a dictatorship of a puny uh, minority, uh, that's called Alawis. Yeah, they are some say a sect uh, of uh, of, uh, mus- of uh, Muslims, but yeah. I guess it's debatable. And they rule a, hu- a huge majority of I don't know if it's Shia, it's Sunnis.
1: Or Sunni. you can, the the you biggest majority Sunni. is Sunnis. Shia is a very tiny right. minority in Syria.
0: And 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 that regime was um, fabricated, right? Uh, more or less by 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 the West, uh, uh, or or correct me if I'm wrong. Like who put uh, the Assad family in power?
1: Well, there is a lot of theories in, in, in Syria. <laughs> so uh, so uh, the most prominent theory actually is that it was uh, Israel that helped. Off as okay. Assad uh Control Syria and the price for that was giving up the Golan Heights. That's uh-huh. uh, a very prominent theory in in Syria. <laughs> now it's uh, it's it's circumstances probably probably Hafez Assad was was a smart guy. He understood the landscape of world politics and regional politics, and took advantage of it to the maximum. He used the contradiction of the uh, Syrian societies. There was a a big um, divide between the countryside and the city elites let's say that and uh, me coming from the city elites let's say so i understand what's happened what happened probably because i witnessed something similar to it when i went back 2007 like it was a full circle like his father used them but then these uh, a lot of them revolted against his son so it was uh, he he empowered some of the people who were marginalized communities and at the same time he portrayed himself to be uh, a protector of uh, uh, minorities uh, so uh, that's uh, so he used this elements all of this for his uh, personal gain and power but uh, when he grew up did you feel like
0: around you in home outside of home it's cool like there, was there bitterness
1: that you're
0: under like the, this small yes. random minority yes there, there,
1: yes there was bitterness there was uh like syrians at the beginning they weren't that much but after that it became um like they saw things becoming more sectarians like more of alawite minority controlling more and more of key positions economically and most importantly military and intelligence and uh, there was some other people from other regions of syria but the key key positions the key command structure was mainly being uh, controlled by alawites of course there was his his brother who later tried to overthrow him was also a prominent figure in the in the regime structure so yes uh, sunnis had uh, a bitter thing regarding they felt that they're being marginalized. They felt that their, uh, uh, you know, economic interest is being suppressed. Especially, there was a lot of resentment uh, in the north, and somehow in 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 Damascus. But mainly, like if you go from Hama to Idlib, Aleppo, these cities were the major heartland of uh, Sunni uh, elites. So they were very frustrated with that. And this is what happened in 1980, like part of the Muslim Brotherhood was also resentment to, toward the Alawis control of uh, the government. And, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, took advantage of this resentment and, uh, and revolted against the regime.
0: And why... Why did your, it's a bit of a sensitive question maybe, but no, go your, ahead. Parents, yeah. your parents were apparently extremely savvy and intelligent and, yeah. and why would such people stay under this dictatorship? Why didn't they go?
1: Actually, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And I don't know if I have the perfect answer for you. My 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 parents did their residency in Barcelona, and Spain, so they were living in in Spain. And uh, but that uh, Syria back and before like Assad came was a very prosperous country. Like uh, the standard of living was high, and there for them, I think they saw there is an opportunity because of lack. Of physicians like them to go and they made a lot of money like when they came back and opened their practice uh, there was a need for uh, specialties that they uh, have and they made a lot of money the problem is that there was not a lot of things you could uh, spend it on in Syria like we had very a few access like we were a very socialist society that is borderline going towards North Korea actually sub was like very much influenced by north korea when he came back he adapted a lot of the same structures like even more than the soviet union even though he was their allies but he he that like this cult of the one leader and uh, like giving the reign of power to his next of kin was a north korean thing like soviet union you has change of leaders it wasn't about the a person and his family, like like we we call it like a, a, a Republican monarchy, you know, Syria, something like that. So that was adopted from. But for them, it was uh, they were making good, and and they were happy to live among their friends, their family. They didn't wanna. They felt at home. That's their home. That's uh, and they were doing very good. So this is why they came back.
0: And before we get to the war, uh, one last question that I have to ask you is how. Growing up, what did they teach you about the
1: Jews? Oh, everything. Jews are bad. You know, we, Jews are the source of all evils in the world. Jews or Israelis? No, Jews. Jews, Jews. 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 Okay. Israelis is like, as uh, part of this Jewish uh, thing. Of course, uh, you know, some people try to make the difference, but you have to understand growing up in Syria, like i was born in 1972 so 70 late 70s 80s is when i formed my positions we didn't have access to internet or like even the libraries were very controlled what books we uh, we read tv one tv station so there was no satellite so we had all these things coming into our minds and the books we read for instance books i read was uh one actually uh, later on I understood that it was uh, actually Nazi propaganda but by then it was supposed written by the defense minister of Syria uh who was actually uh Sunni his name is Mustafa, and he wrote this book about the blood matzah and it was about a story of Jewish- it's a, rec- a recite book it's
0: yeah yeah book. He, he, he made it
1: <laughs> he made it uh, into like it happened in Damascus like this like these Jewish uh uh Rabbi and 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 they went and kidnapped this Christian kid and slaughtered him and drained their blood to put it in the matzah and 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 uh, protocols of the elders of Zion and I read it and 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 we believed it as gospel. You know, for us, you know, your defense minister is writing this. I mean, the guy have resources. You know, and you living in a society that no one like had freedom of speech or critical thinking. They say, "Oh, come, come on, you know, blood and matzo Like, if you know Jewish, uh, not even a good combo. combo. But yeah, it, it doesn't work. Like, if you blood know the, sausage is, is okay. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, this is the issue. Like, a lot of people don't they didn't know the. Like, what's, what Judaism is, what, what's what's forbidden, what's uh, permitted, uh, ju- if you're a, a person of the Jewish faith, you know. So, we, we believed all of this, and, and, and on and on and on, I can tell you about, and no one argued with it. We collectively believed these things, and a lot of, of us grew up. And if you don't want to, like even if you were uh, later on, you exposed to so many things, if you don't make the effort to go and learn and try to and and with an open mind and see it, a lot of people still believe it that that's that's true. You know, this is what they grew up with. So that 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 was the the view.
0: Unbelievable. Um, Okay, so it's let's jump to, to the war to the civil war. So, first of all, if you can explain, because I guess many people don't really remember anymore, why did this civil war erupt and where did it find you?
1: So I, I'm, I'm not political. I'm, I'm, I wasn't a political person. Actually, my family was uh, very close with the, you know, the, the government structure. Now, we, we, we didn't have any issues oh uh, and actually my cousin is still a a minister in the current government with the south. so yeah wow. yes yeah so we 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 are still you know we were i wasn't at all political in this and when i when we first heard the news that's coming from dara which is the province close next to israel like the golan heights and we we didn't understand what was happening like from time to time there was some unrest but we are very tense because of what's going on in the whole Middle East with the Arab Spring, like, and, and governments being overthrown. So, we didn't know if that was, you know, some local uh, event or something bigger. And, and this area of Haran and Dara are traditionally like they are very close to the regime. A lot of their, like, they are Sunni, but a lot of the, the people there would go into the Bas party. And the Muhabarat structure. So uh, there is a, a term we call them. We call them the Alawites of the Sunnah. Like mm-hmm. that, like because they're very close to the regime. So we were very a little bit surprised. People on the north who are traditionally anti-Assad. So we are surprised of this. And then we learned that what happened, because they are tribal and they have like very prominent family like these kids on a school was writing graffiti about what they're hearing on the news the people want to overthrow the regime and stuff like this so the head of the uh, political police we had who was a cousin of Assad of Bashar Assad went and arrested them and he they tortured them beat them and they were from these families of this and all everyone is connected so the prominent family members and the elders came to this guy and asked him like to release them and he was very aggressive toward them and there was a statement that he made that exploded everything was like you know forget about your children go back home and sleep with your wives and make new children if you and if you can't do so i'll send my men. they'll make new children with your wives so for a traditional middle eastern tribal society that was a huge insult and there's other versions that they actually put there there's something that the arabs put that's called a gal the something that is round that's very like uh, has a huge symbol for people who are from Arab tribal uh, uh, heritage and they put it on his table like we put this to as uh, respect And he took these and he threw it in the garbage so all these things uh made people angry and there was a demonstration and the response was brutal so the government came and started shooting at the demonstration and four people killed and then it's like it's uh you know what the snowball effect like Mm -hmm. started you know more demonstration more crackdown more demonstration and then it uh, transferred to other cities that had other grievances like the other cities didn't have the same grievances areas in syria went up in uprising for different grievances it wasn't it wasn't the same uh, and and there's a saying in in, in syria that actually who who, who was who's respond you know who started the revolution is not the demonstration or the kids is bashar Assad himself because his crackdown created the snowball effect and all the frustrations everywhere in syria came so to the surface so people continued for like peaceful for about six months but the crackdown was getting harsher and harsher and harsher more military means and are being used and after that you know things became more militarized and could you believe what you're witnessing could you believe you're living this no no, no to be honest i i thought the several three months that it was not going to explode like you have to understand syria was controlled very tightly like the the intelligence services were everywhere we were afraid to even say a joke like we say a joke that have political meanings we will whisper like even i i have it until now with me when i'm like when i'm outside i'm talking politically somehow i lower my my physical yeah it's it's like this is and, and i look around me like is there someone who looks like syrian or arab or something yes yeah. this is this is the level of fear we had so we we never expected that thing especially my generation probably the younger generation didn't witness what happened in the 80s and the brutality because we witnessed people being put like they will stop cars they will bring 20 young men put them on on a wall and then shoot them that was a normal practice in In the 80s so we knew how brutal the regime could be so we were afraid but the young people you know they didn't witness that and they wanted more freedoms they were seeing everything changing around them and i said what the heck let's try it and then we got a civil war
0: and where does it like really hit you on the nose for the first time
1: it was uh the first speech in the uh, parliament in late march 2011. that was when i thought you know oh you know should
0: you know <laughs> this, this
1: is this this is going to be a bloodbath we were hyped during these several weeks by uh, officials from the government that uh, reforms are going to be made things are going to change you know we're listening to the frustration of the people and what's happening because there was a lot of economic distress and problems in the country corruption was high and people were leaving the countryside trying to make it into the cities with high rents very low salaries salaries were like you would get 150 dollars if you get 200 a month you'll be a very good salary so and and prices were going up so it was unsustainable So we thought, okay, he's going to offer us a solution, and then came the uh, speech in Parliament. He was uh, laughing in a very obnoxious way, and he was just telling us his version of what happens. All is a conspiracy. All is this, uh, you know, American imperialist Zionist conspiracy against, against their resistance regime. And uh, then his final solution, if you continue, that's war, and we'll crush you. And we were, oh, no, people are not going to stop by now. And uh, too much blood was spelt, and, and people revolted even more. And that was the moment I knew that things are serious. was going to be very bloody and very long.
0: Now, you run a hospital by the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Family's hospital. Yes. You know that Yes. And Aleppo became one of the main places yes. where battles took place. So where did you like actually experience war
1: like outside your window? Uh, and, and, and not at the beginning it wasn't very active like early 2011 uh, Aleppo wasn't. And war actually came to Aleppo like in like directly, like battles on the street were around late summer. 2012. But before that, there was a lot of fighting starting to happen in the countryside, assassinations, some kind of car bombings. Of course, there was demonstration at the beginning, special, especially in the university, which was very close to our hospital, like people will demonstrate. And sometimes we'll p- see people running and trying to get into our hospital because different entrances and exits, try to get in and get out, people were uh, following them. Uh, regime uh, used a lot of uh, these uh, thug militias, not there that would uh, brutally beat people uh, sometimes with knives and, and other stuff. Uh, you know, so it was very, very brutal. So, and we started seeing more and more people getting, uh, uh, you know, shot at. Some people getting stabbed, and then started in um, around New Year's, early like December, January we started receiving more wounded from military activities in the countryside. And that's when we started seeing more and more uh, roadblocks, more and more military...
0: Wounded from the rebels or wounded from... The uh, at, the
1: be- at the beginning it was from everyone, but we would uh, rebels like people who were fighting, we wouldn't get them. But we would get people who, because hospitals we can't, they will come and pick them up. But we will get their families. And at the beginning, it was okay. Then their family members were being threatened of being picked up. And this is actually when I started helping people who are being wounded and needed treatment, but they couldn't come to our hospitals or other hospitals. So we helped them provide them with the equipment and the consumables and the medication to try to save themselves. So we really were you know, trying to help these civilians that can't go to the hospital just because their family name is the same family name of someone wanted to the regime. So they couldn't come. So this is what we tried to do.
0: And you had mukhabarat in the hospital, like
1: Oh, all, all the time, all the time. So usually you would call the police if there's a shooting, you know, someone come wounded with a bullet wound, you'll call the police. When, when these things escalated in 2011 every branch of the intelligence services in syria came and gave us a number that we need to call them we had a list big list like we had to call so many people i was like why do we have no call us all this is the system in syria it's like uh, you know like the u.s and balances to control the uh You know uh, the government in in Syria the Assad regime check and balances so they can control everything. So even Mm -hmm. Mujahidat branches spy on each other. They don't trust each other. They're also a competition. So they would. So we had the military uh, intelligence, air force intelligence, uh, political police. uh, uh, So many. You know, so many branches, and of course the normal police. We had to call each and every one of them, tell them, oh, we have a person with a bullet wound. We have a person that was beaten. These were the signatures of someone might be a sympathizer of the opposition or some family member of an opposition figure or, or, or one of these fighters. So you would need approval to treat them? Uh, no, no. We could we we, do, we didn't know who's coming in. But once you come in, you you have what you have to the emergency room. You start treating them, but immediately you call. So they would come during, like, they were very fast. They always had, like, is there a representative in our hospital? Or, like, they were very close. So, th- like, let me give you an example. A kid came in that who was, like, four or five years old. who was shot with a bullet that actually went through his, like, one side and, and exited through his stomach. So the kid was, was in a very terrible chain. So they came in and immediately, like, I went, what's going on? We had other wounded, but this kid had two uh questioning him, where did you get hit? What happened to you? And the kid and I was listening to him and uh, the kid while the doctor was trying to, uh, cure, uh, you know, save him, patch him up. And he said, Well, the terrorists were on the tank, and they shot me. And 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 we were like, we were. It was very funny for us because back then we knew only the army had a tank. So there, no one, no one knew <laughs> that everyone knew that it was the government that shot the kid. But they said, okay, yeah. okay, okay, go, go and get him, you know. But he, but his family was so afraid. So they taught him, like, it's the terrorists, it's the terrorists. So this is how this is how people behave. This is how people, you know, talk just uh, just to get treatment.
0: It's it's very hard to imagine uh, the situation you've been through. W- when do you start, like? I don't know crossing crossing lines, flirting with what's allowed for you to do and what's not allowed for you to do as as a hospital manager.
1: Um, it was uh, it was probably late uh, summer 2011, probably, and it was uh, through other friends that in the hospital doctors we were beginning to feel frustrated, like things are becoming more bloodier, people are becoming helpless they needed help, and 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 I remember one of my friends came to me and said, like, what are we doing, are we going still like, just like this, do nothing, and I thought about it, and I always thought that, you know, my kid was, my son was like, very young back then, he was, he was like, uh, three years old, and I was like, okay, what am I gonna tell him after he grows up, like, uh, about Syria, he's probably gonna read, what did you do? Well, you know, I took care of business, and we had money, so, I cared about the money. I, I didn't feel like he would look to me in a very nice or 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 like proud of what I did. So I saw like, you know, in these moments, you need to do something, you know, you can't just sit around, not do anything, only care about your property and your bank account or anything. But, but this is more bigger than one person. So uh, that's when I started with friends organizing and buying equipment from ourselves, self. Uh, we had money. We were we were well off. So we didn't need anyone. So we, we bought stuff. And we were in hospital. So I could buy a lot of stuff. And no one would notice. And we started... You hid it like in, the, in all the... Yeah, yeah. It was like I was going to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. This was all hidden. And we started giving it to... to and, and, and the university was a very crucial part. Students in the university were from different cities in Syria, so we had like these types of cells that came to us and and asked us for um, consumables and medication and equipment, and we would give it to them, and uh, they will send it to their uh, cities that by then were becoming besieged, like the the regime um, tactic was besiegement of areas, depriving them of food, medicine, of anything. So they could starve to until they surrender, and it's a a very effective tactic. Uh, You know, it's brutal but effective. And and uh, we were trying to help these people, like uh, try to stay alive. And the risk was death Death. for you and all your loved ones. Death, death, and uh, probably uh, you know tortured until death. Yeah. And and there was other people that we know that were tortured and were killed
0: but also you risk your family
1: yes it was a huge risk i tried like this is why i uh, moved my like my wife and kids outside the country in in late 2011 and i came back and i tried to uh, not tell like my parents or my sibling or anyone else that what i was doing so they wouldn't have to be harmed because of that even though you know the regime wouldn't stop uh, at uh, this but uh, i thought that that was the best way not to make them uh, harmed
0: and were you interrogated
1: no i wasn't interrogated they never believed i was fool enough to do something like that like most yeah. of the people who had uh, financial interests and didn't like uh, didn't participate so like i said we were very we were very you know close to a lot of the regime structures so like no one probably suspected me to be foolish enough to do something like that. Like, I risked everything. I lost everything. I, I all my property, everything I own, everything. Uh, how did how did you lose it? What happened? They they confiscated it. The government confiscated it. And because everything... of your involvement. Yes, or... because of oh, that. Wait, we no, jumped. We jumped. Yeah, we jumped yeah and I government. have a arrest warrant uh, from the Intelli- uh, Air Force Intelligence. Okay, so I
0: want to get to how it happened, but there was also—I hope I'm not confusing—but there was also a water initiative during. Oh, that, that's that's. The, or that's later. That's
1: that's later on. That's okay, my involvement so, with so, Israel. Okay. Yeah.
0: So we'll get to that in in a second. So just tell us how did you end up uh, becoming a refugee and fleeing? Well, from Syria? yeah.
1: Well, uh, after uh, well after like uh, we were discovered. I was I was luckily you know I used to. How were you I, discovered? um oh so it's a very interesting story like uh the the intelligence services of the regime are are very savvy and sophisticated so they infiltrated the uh free syrian army which was the opposition armed forces which is the free syrian army was a brand but in reality most of the of the people like the commanders were local warlords like they, they weren't uh, of military background so the Intelligence of the regime infiltrated them, so they, they 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 knew that there was a group doing something, like but they needed to figure out who. So they uh, they uh, two of the assistants of one of these warlords arrested two of our cell and they started interrogating them. So we had to go to them using another person from opposition forces that know us personally and know what that we are trying to help the wounded to go and tell them no, they, because they, they they said they were regime sympathizers, that they were regime agents, the people who are anti-regime. So, so they interrogated them. We told them that we are not with the regime, we're actually against regime, but we're in regime territory. And after this incident, uh, the regime had all the information. So our suspicion is that people inside the opposition gave the regime all the information. Otherwise, they wouldn't know. And from that moment, all our uh, cell, which was uh, the people who were not known to a lot of uh, individuals in Syria, had arrest warrants for them, and I was one of them.
0: How did you know you have, there's an arrest warrant for you? Uh,
1: they came to um, question my father. They didn't find you. No, they went first. I was, through. I was, I was abroad. Luckily, uh-huh. I was visiting my family. Pure luck. I, pure luck. I used to go outside and come back. I was coming back, had a flight back home, and the fighting was so extensive that all uh, flights were canceled and airports in Aleppo and other places were were shut. So the only way to go back was through Beirut, and there was not a, not no 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 reservations. So I took a reservations that was later to go back. I was going back. Everything I have, I, I, I everything I have was left there so clothes everything like i had a small bag with me just I, was, I just went for a week two and coming back and that's when it happened so when my friends called me and said don't come back i didn't believe him so i called my father and my father was we had a code and syria you talk is with code because everything there is someone listening to so he was like oh where are you now i said well um i came i was in the u.s came to bulgaria and i was i'm coming back like uh, and he said, "Oh, Bulgaria is a nice country. Stay there." And I was my dad never told me to stay there. I was, "When you are coming back, and come back quickly." But so then I knew that my f- friend was telling me is right. And after that, of course, we we all knew. I understood that they came and, and and like questioned him about me. They were trying to find me. They couldn't find me, so I knew uh, I was wanted. And then there was a leak of arrest warrants, and my name was uh, one of the people who were. Uh, Wanted, and of course the uh, the document for seizure of all property also came out, so we knew. And uh, were
0: your your parents, your family harmed? They were
1: they were harassed. They were harassed a lot. They were harassed, uh, uh, but weren't like uh, let's say weren't didn't go to prison. Only my brother, but I think it was unrelated to my issue. But my parents didn't, uh, you know, they were. It was tough. But uh, I, I, I thought that if I, if I, like, if I stop doing what I'm doing, the pressure might be increased on them because the regime will think that it worked. So I thought, like, uh, let's stop communication with them, and my parents could say that I'm a bad son. Uh, He doesn't listen to us and they would stop, and luckily this happened, like I, it was very hard for me because I couldn't speak to my mother and father for like the last five years before they passed away, I couldn't talk to them when they passed away even, so uh, it was very tough, it was very hurtful, yeah. this is something that will, will last with me forever, like not being able to say goodbye to my parents, but I saw that's the price to sacrifice to keep them safe during these uh, times, you know, they were of age, they weren't young people.
0: And did any of your co-conspirators, was anyone executed or...
1: No, we we uh, most of them, uh, most of them, some of them were arrested, but they later released. A very bad uh, situation, but some, but uh, like some of them died. They were tortured. Yeah, yeah. During like one of my colleagues were tortured a lot. He almost lost his his foot because of torture, but he was released. So there was people that was killed because of the military activity, but not under the. The torture, like the people of my cell, but of course there's a lot of other people that were killed under torture that I know of, and and but not in our uh, group that we were working.
0: Okay, so uh, there's a few more things I want to cover in the little time that we have. So so let's talk about the water uh, project because you become a refugee, you still right away in America or it takes no passion? no.
1: I went to I went to stay between Bulgaria and uh, Turkey. And that's uh, when, like, I was start because I knew Bulgarian. I lived there. I have a Bulgarian passport, so uh, so it was easy to me for me to go there. And during my stay in Bulgaria, I I met um, was introduced to an Israeli NGO that, uh, and I was, you know, a friend. Like, would you like to meet this NGO? And I was like, yeah, for, of course. We were looking for aid. You know, Syria was somehow becoming very very brutal and people are desperate but there was not a lot of aid coming to syria in the first several years like and refugees were starting flooding europe and people were like surprised but it was like 2013 and people the war was going on for like more than a year and a half so we needed all the help so i was very skeptical you know you know like i told my my background is jews are bad like why do they want to help someone you guys only kill people, you know, and tell people this is our perception. This is how we look. So when uh, they came and I met them, and I don't, uh, to be honest, I don't know why, why I met them, uh, probably because I was desperate when I would think that we needed all the help we can. But I was very skeptical with all the conspiracy theories come to mind. Oh, they are Mossad. They want to know something. And I was like, what do they want to know? What can I offer them? Nothing no i have no information so we met and we started talking and they they started telling me how like they're pure ngo that's only they care about helping people they help people all over the world and syrians now need help and they how we can help so i was like okay and and, you know that brought some credibility and said let's try it and we tried and we started working and they really came came through you know they provided some aid i I provided it then we had uh, a very interesting uh, story with a friend of mine who was uh, his um, his son was about to die because of a heart's condition and he was living in Aleppo under siege and everything and I was like uh, and he said like can you get some NGO around the world to help me out and I was like uh, no your problem is a visa I can't get a visa there are places but you can't get there. And then I called my Israeli friends and they said, well, we can do it because there was three countries like Germany, the U.S. or Israel and all. And I said, can you get a visa? And they said, we can. So we we got this kid from Aleppo uh, to Israel and we had his heart surgery, which is successful. And now he's uh, a I think he's almost uh, 17 years old. (laughs) Yeah, and he was like uh, going to die, but it was a very interesting exchange with his father, because his father needed to come with him, he was a young child, so one of his parents needed to come. So I told his dad, you know, the only place you can go to that I can find you is Israel. And there was this silence on the other line, and I was like, hello, you're still there? And he was like, I'm where? And I said, Israel, this is the only place. So and he was like are you for real i said yeah and he was uh i was worried to tell him because he didn't know i i was working with israeli ngos so he was worried i was worried you know Uh, but at the end he took the risk and he went and when he come came back his attitude was so positive he told me so fascinating stories and of course the saving his 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 kid was amazing so there was these incidents that uh, brought us more and more into cooperations with ngos and organizations in israel and uh, later on in 2014 i joined the multi-face alliance and uh, i we started uh, looking into ways to bring aid from israel into syria and israel wasn't like uh, very receptive to the israeli government i mean uh, receptive to this they said no we don't want to interfere in this war you know they're killing each other we don't care but then there was this uh, accepting of uh, wounded, um, you know, people on the border that was treated in Israel. And in 2015, late 2015, a uh, Project Good, Good Neighbor Project by an entity, I, I probably know at Koga, that controls this humanitarian, I think also to Gaza and the West Bank, was in charge of that. So my organization, me personally, worked through the Golan Heights to Israel from 2016 to 18 to bring aid there and it was an amazing, amazing experience, you know, and that's also made me interact more with the people and with the more officials, more army people. Did you
0: visit, so you visited Israel?
1: Oh, I uh, <laughs> my first time was 2014 it was a scary one, but by now I... Uh, I know my way in Israel pretty good, I, I, I rent a car and I go. My last, uh, visit, uh, my last time was, uh, was, I went to Arad and wow. I'm yeah, and my friends was like, where are you? I said, no, where the heck is this? I said, well, oh, I explained to you. We went to, uh, to see a project in a Bedouin uh, community school that we want to implement in Syria. And from there, we saw some projects that Israel has done either in Gaza and the West Bank. And, and and in Israel itself, and one of them was water. And we, we went to a company called WaterGen that implemented some of these projects, for instance, in Gaza in hospitals, and they produced water from air, from humidity. And, and Syria has a similar weather, you know, level of humidity, like a desert life. So we started taking this equipment and implementing it in uh, Syria. And of course, uh, we got uh, attacked for it. Like, oh, the, the people start saying, oh, this is an Israeli uh, government cooperation with I don't know one. And I was like, no, 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 this is pure humanitarian. Yes, Israeli company is, is selling it and donating half of the of the amount, and we're getting the other, and we're implementing it in Syria. But the best part of all of this story is, is the locals. Like people in Syria, and you know, I don't know what am I allowed to say or not, didn't give a shit about this this politics like they when they knew that it's is Israeli, it didn't matter it's for when them you're
0: thirsty, <laughs>
1: yeah, it doesn't matter like and actually, they have a good perception of Israeli technology like it's a good one, but how would Assad allow this it, to it, it wasn't under Assad areas Assad wouldn't allow. <laughs> Right. Assad today, is like, he,
0: he, today, he again controls of No, everything. not all
1: of Syria. So Assad controls about, uh, let's say, 60% of Syria.
0: 60%.
1: Yes. He had less, but with the help of Russia and Iran, he, he took control. So there is an area around the uh, northern parts of northern Aleppo, Idlib City, and this, that is controlled under the influence of Turkey. There is a third uh they, we call it east of the Euphrates River, that is mainly controlled by the U.S. with the Kurdish-led forces called Syrian Democratic Forces that control that areas. So uh, the need was actually in that area, and this is where we implemented mm-hmm. these projects. These, these areas are a mix of Arab and Kurds, and actually the areas we implemented in were uh, Arab-majority uh, areas. So it wasn't like it was Kurds. No, it was Arab, Sunni, majority areas. And people are uh, very happy. We've implemented now five projects in schools and you hospitals. You continue to do it? Oh, yeah, we continue today. until now. Until now. Just, uh, just last week, we implemented one in a school. So what we do, we give the uh, generating water. And we also provide electricity through solar power to the facility so they could get they get electricity they get water and through that they could get how the
0: technology works exactly
1: it's uh it's a generator that condenses the air and produces water from the air you don't need any hooks anything in the desert in the desert this is this is the uniqueness of it it's um how to simplify it like you read
0: uh, you read the dune i i dune
1: yeah yeah yeah, the movie yeah, it's exactly yeah. like, yeah, the it's, like yeah, it's exactly the same. So, crazy, you know, June <laughs> was written very far in the 60s. Uh, yeah, in the 60s, they didn't know that uh, probably 40 years ago we'd have this technology. It's insane. So, yeah, it's, it's an insane technology. Even when we first implemented, I was skeptical, and people like they were said, There's nothing. I said, No, there is nothing. And, and when they and it's hooked to water coolers. So the, the water comes in and the quality is, is amazing. It's like you're drinking Evian or, or like Fiji water. It's so tasty. It's pure. It's pure, really pure, water. pure, pure, pure water. And it's, it's, an, it's, it's amazing and it's cold, comes cold. So uh, people were astonished. And, and then we started like, this is why more and more, now we have a list of facilities that are coming to us and saying, can you please implement this project in our facilities? Because, like, for instance, if, if you're on humid dialysis in, in Syria, you need good water. There is no source of water. And we were facing more and more, and this is why we adapted in school, there was a cholera epidemic happening because of the bad quality of water that people were drinking. So this prevented a lot of diseases. This prevented people uh, you know, dying because they didn't. How many liters
0: did a day this machine can produce?
1: Well, I'm blanking now on the liters, but it ha- I, it it can give water to around 800 to 1,200 people daily. Oh, okay. I think it's five okay. liters. So I think uh, for a person daily, so maybe about 6,000 liters, 6,000, 7,000 liters a day, wow, something like insane.
0: that.
1: Yeah. And this is why we had it like we had it with. We had a battery bank because it, there was no electricity in most war zones or remote areas, no electricity. So solar would have, we have battery bank and you need to run it 24 hours because the consumption is mainly in the morning. So we yeah. run it all the time, fill the tank in in the evening and then people can drink it a day. So. Uh, and and we were trying to show people, you know, Israel is uh, is is benefits. You know, there is there's beneficial technology, high tech in in so many fields, water, agriculture, in so many things that we can work together to benefit each other.
0: Sometimes I feel apropos, you know, I don't want to make this too topical, but apropos also the Gaza situation. But the feeling sometimes is like, you know to change this indoctrination it's like emptying the spoon with emptying the sea with a teaspoon right
1: it's yeah
0: like, I, I, it's I, it's an impossible struggle i know
1: yeah i understand that i'm i'm like i'm not a pipe uh, I, I you know pipe dreamer or something like that i understand that it's very tough you know it's uh, it's not an easy task when you have a population indoctrinated like for instance it's 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 very hard when you have uh, my my community, my my Arab community, my, feel that they are victims. They are victims of something that happened because of Israel and the Jews. And it was very hard for me and for others. And I wrote an article about it. Like, and I said we're both victims. We're we're not only victims. You know, everyone is a victim in the Middle East or somewhere, and everyone did something wrong in the Middle East in a way or another. But we have to understand that it's. And I try to give an example of our Jewish population in, in Syria and all Arab countries in the Muslim world. And I say, look, if you want to, to talk to other people that look at you as their enemies, at least we need to understand each other's grievances and where we're coming from. We don't, we virtually have zero Jews in our societies. Why? How did these people disappear? Uh, oh, they, they left. I said, no one leaves their homes and their property just because they want to leave. You know, it, it wasn't like that. So people then started understanding that what we did wrong to our Jewish society, how we didn't protect them, how we didn't let them feel safe amongst us, and, and, and how they left in mass everyone, where now we have, zero we need to recognize these sufferings we need to recognize these strategies we can't just cancel them from our memory and then expect the other side to to say oh you are the only one are suffering and we didn't suffer no we both suffered so let's discuss all of this let's open but the first thing we need to do is talk we can't yeah. just stay apart i i i um we need to, to recognize what we did wrong we need to recognize. Uh, you know, the tragedies that we 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 made, and at the same time, how we can become better. So people around the Middle East can trust each other, we have a trust deficit right now. We don't trust each other. Because you know, our precedent, our history is not very good with each other. You know, so this is something that is a process. It's it's a long one. It's a tough one. I don't have I understand the awareness that the people are scared. And when they are scared, they go tribal. But uh, I don't see any other situation. I mean, you can, you can keep, uh, you know, military engagement, but for how long? It will be weary on, on any society, on any mentality, on any any people. So there needs to be a new way. And I think some Arab countries have started doing it. Like I see precedent of very good initiatives. And I I think we need more and more of this, more engagement, more understanding, more talking to each other. Me as a Muslim and Arab talk to my community, and my Israeli friends and Jewish friends talk to their community, come together, understand each other, recognize each other's suffering, and let's see how we can move forward. I don't see any other way other than that. We can keep fighting, but it will destroy all of us mentally, Financially, and we will lose a lot of our humanity, unfortunately. Do you
0: think you'll ever see Aleppo again? Nope.
1: Probably not to be realistic. Probably not. I hope I I will maybe and not in my uh, lifetime. at least I hope my kids could uh, see this their ancestral home. You know, I I i resonate with my jewish brothers from aleppo who i have a lot of friends and especially in brooklyn who has, has a very halabi jewish community my story is something similar to their story you know they were pushed out for something they don't know like they had no say in it and yeah. they they were they were living there for centuries they were as as uh, you know original inhabitants as any one of us, probably, you know, before my family, but, yeah. uh, so, so I, I, I resonate, I resonate now with their story, with what they went through, so, I don't know, maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to go together, maybe. What do you miss most about home? Uh, is the homeless really that good? So, serum food is, is, is amazing. <laughs> Halabi food is, is the best, uh, in my opinion. And uh, of course, I'm very biased, but it is it is very good. You know, Aleppo, Halab is very similar to Jerusalem, by the way. It has a, a very similar um, stone buildings, uh, architect, and stuff like this. It's, it's very similar, but Aleppo is, 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 Halab is, is, is much larger. You know, Jerusalem is is a smaller city. And uh, the most I miss is is the people, you know, it's it's always the people, you know, everything can be rebuilt. Uh, Aleppo has been destroyed so many times, earthquakes, natural disasters and wars and everything. But as long you have people, as long as your people are there and willing, that's that's will come back. And, and unfortunately, Aleppo's population probably is half what it used to be. And without people, the talent, the goodwill, you will never have the spirit, the spirit has died in Aleppo, unfortunately.
0: Okay, um, the NGO, do you accept uh, donations,
1: can people? Yes, we, we oh. of course, this <laughs> is so we accept donations, yes, it's uh, www.multificealliance.org, and of course they can follow us on... Uh, you know, Instagram, Facebook, and all and other. Are you stuff.
0: active on
1: social media? Uh, I'm. I'm personally act active in my uh, personal domain. I'm. I'm, uh, I'm a guy who likes to laugh lots. I okay. like to 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 have jokes. I like to have uh, fun with my friends. I think that laughter is the best, uh, maybe weapon against depression and against the. Uh, PTSD that uh, mainly a lot of people who witnessed war and atrocities and went through horrific condition, uh, you know, can can heal themselves. And this is this is the way I saw it for me myself and and a lot of my friends. So uh, I'm active. Yes, I'm active on uh, Twitter as well. Twitter okay. I'm more political, but uh, in uh, in in Facebook and other social media I'm more okay. of a... So yeah, people can find you yes on social course. media
0: under your name. Yes, yes. Cadi yes. Martini like
1: the drink. I li- exactly like the drink. That's that's <laughs> the easiest part. Okay. <laughs> and it's Syrian. <laughs> this name is Syrian. Nothing yeah? to do with Italian. Yeah, 100% Syrian. It's uh, Mar is is Aramaic for uh, master, and Tini is figs. So my family comes from an area which is famous for figs. So apparently they called us the masters of figs or something. My grandfather (laughs) used to sell figs or something. So it's an Aramaic uh, name. It's uh, very ancient.
0: Very nice. Shadi, thank you so much. You know, you moved me. and In those uh, turbulent times, it's something.
1: Well, thank you, Naryor. I I mean, I I really appreciate, uh, you know, your invitation and uh, you know I, I i can't say more than I, I hope everyone can and talk to each other understand each other and, and and where they're coming from and their worries and grievances and and try to help each other because at the end of the days we're in this land together we yeah. I, I don't see anyone is, is leaving we <laughs> all or, or, or wants here to stay and want to raise our kids so let's hope some how we can reach out to each other and talk to each other okay
0: for sure thank you so much I thank really you, thank it you. And keep thank on doing you. the thank amazing you. Things, things you do
1: have a good day and uh, happy, new year. happy new year bye bye